This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15-Minute History. My name is Augusta DeLomo. I'm a graduate student in the University of Texas at Austin, and I'll be leading today's discussion. I'm excited to be here with Lauren Henley, who's a third-year graduate student in the Department of History at UT. Lauren works on the American South in the 19th and 20th century, focusing on African-American women, girlhood and adolescence, criminality, and urbanity. She's here today to talk to us about what happened in Austin from 1884 to 1885 and the complexities of studying violent crime. Lauren, it's great to have you. Thank you. So, Lauren, let's start with what happened in Austin in 1884 to 1885. Sure. So, on December 30th, 1884, Molly Smith, a relatively young black woman, was killed. She was killed in her bed late at night and no one really knows what happened. She worked for an insurance agent from Galveston, and unfortunately, her common-law husband was injured in the head. He went to her employer's house at about 3 a.m., knocked on the door, and said, Molly's gone. Of course, this started a lot of controversy. His employer, a white man, is nervous and is concerned. They go outside, and they find Molly's body. Then, on May 7th, Eliza Shelley is killed, also a young black woman, and unfortunately, she has some young kids. They witness her killing. Then, just three weeks later, Irene Cross, a black woman, is also killed, and she's alive for about two or three hours after her first attack, and then she succumbs to her injuries. Then, the summer passes. Really, nothing too extreme happens. And on September 1st, things get a little crazy because an 11-year-old young black girl, Mary Ramey, is also killed. Her mom, Rebecca, is sandbagged. And Mary, like Irene, was alive at the time reporters arrived at the scene. But then she died about an hour later. Then at the end of September, Gracie Vance and Orange Washington, a black couple, were killed in their house. There were actually four people present, two boarders they were keeping, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson, and those two were just injured. So, you have in this span of about nine months, a handful of black women, a black girl, and then a black man who were all murdered, arguably under the same auspices. Interestingly enough, Christmas Eve, 1885, two white women are killed. One is 17-year-old Eula Phillips, and one is 40-year-old Susan Hancock. They're killed within a few hours of each other. And though both their husbands are eventually sort of charged with their crimes, one is acquitted, one is convicted, somehow those two also get looped in with the previous six. And so Austin coins the term the Severn Girl Annihilator to explain who did these murders. And it turns out that no one actually was ever caught. No one was charged. The crime still goes unsolved today. So how did the city react to these murders? Well, obviously, panic. I mean, the city is on edge. There's a level of interracial cooperation that really doesn't exist other places in the post-Reconstruction era South. It just can't. And so the city is really unique in that they call for everyone, Black and white, men and women, to arm themselves, literally with 
guns. People stop socializing in the evenings because they're too scared that they're going to come home and see that their women are killed. Every black man in the city at some point is questioned in relation to these murders, but none of them are ever arrested and, and held. And then, interestingly, a sort of cultural artifact emerges, which is a little jingle that comes out of these really violent murders. And they sing, Get thee a, a gun, O serving girl, and keep it by thy bed. Take aim upon the ruffian and fill him full of lead. Oh, my God. So clearly, there's an interest in the city to just stop. Stop whatever is going on and figure out who's doing this. Austin, of course, at the time, is a relatively small sort of western fringe city. There's only about 12,000 people in town. They've got about 30 police officers. And so the city government, at the urging, or really mandating, of the Austin Daily Statesman, hires a private detective firm from Houston to actually come up and solve the crimes that doesn't work at all. So this is, I've never heard anything about this particular case. Is this one of the first instances of serial killers in the U.S.? And how do, how do we think about, you know, what qualifies as a serial killer? How do they come to this decision that it's, it's one person? So it's interesting in that a lot of people do think this is the first American serial killer. I think part of the difficulty in discerning that for sure is that the term itself, serial killer, doesn't enter the American lexicon until the mid-20th century. And so when this case is happening, the Serving Girl Annihilator is as close a term as people in that time can figure out. And yet, a lot of people also think that the same person who committed these murders is Jack the Ripper. I don't buy into that theory, but it's an interesting one. So part of the difficulty in studying serial killers is exactly that terminology. One mandate that has been universally accepted now about what qualifies as a serial killer is that there have to be defined cooling off periods. How long that is, what that is, why that is, no one can fully explain. But the thought being that your average person would need time to cool off from a crime, think about what they've done, and then serial killers tend to do it again. Also is the idea that serial killers kill people in a particular pattern. And at this time, the pattern just simply seems to be young Black female domestic servants, but then we have two white women, too. And so it's not quite clear why those two get looped in, other than the fact that the actual way that they're killed seems to be relatively similar. So, serial killer, yes, but can we confirm that it's not multiple people? No. One way I get around that tension is I actually don't use the term serving girl annihilator at all in my writing. I actually focus on the victims and not on the perpetrator because you're exactly right. We don't know. It could have been a series of copycat crimes. It could have been a, just a spattering of urban angst, perhaps. We don't actually know who did it. And so why do people think it's Jack the Ripper? Is it just a sort of speculation that, you know, they never figured out who Jack the Ripper was, that he could be anywhere. It's a nice story, right? Right. If it's Jack the Ripper, well, the thought is he perfected his talent, his penchant for killing women who have deemed themselves sexually problematic. And so Jack the Ripper's crimes happened to start in like 1887 or so, which is just after these have ended. And of course, he's in London there are a few boats that are traveling that way. So it's a nice story. It doesn't actually seem to fit the crimes, though. 
And I want to go back to what you said before about how Austin is kind of unique in that um, the racial dynamics of the city are very different. So can you talk a little bit about how post-Reconstruction ideas of racial hierarchy play into local understandings of these murders? Sure. So obviously, as you know, uh, the Juneteenth celebration starts in Galveston, June 19th, 1865. And as a result, there is an upsurge of Black people recently freed, who are moving towards other parts of Texas, including Austin. And so there developed some really robust Black communities in town. Wheatville, Kitchenville, Clarksville, Masontown are all well-known Black enclaves at the time. And so there are relatively uh, sort of centralized spaces for Black people to congregate and to just build community. And we can't forget, obviously, Texas was once Mexico, so there's a large Hispanic population as well. And though the city is not without segregation and it's not without racial animosity, because, of course, it does exist, there are some really unique spaces in which interracial mixture does take place. One of the most common places is Guy Town, which is the vice district of the city. It's bordered by, like, the river on the south side and then Congress Ave, Guadalupe, and then to today's Fifth Street. Is it called Guy Town, like, because it's for men to go? Precisely. Precisely for men and precisely for men to go cavort with some interesting characters, mostly prostitutes, not surprisingly, but also where the bars and taverns are. There's lots of fighting going on in Guy Town, kind of seedy part of the city. But 5% of the city's female population aged 18 to 44 are in fact prostitutes. So it's a thriving business. I mean, who wouldn't want to have fun down in Guy Town? And so because Guy Town is its own little space, And, for example, the young white woman who was killed, Eula Phillips, is thought to maybe hang out down there and is maybe engaging in some salacious behavior with the city's elite. There are some rather interesting connections between Guy Town and then the rest of Austin. So, when these murders break out, Austin is already in a unique interracial space. And there's a serious debate going on in the paper, which is, I would say, representative of representative of the larger public sort of consensus, which is that, whoa, these murders are way too good to be perpetrated by a black man. He would get caught. There's no way. But they're way too animalistic and way too violent to have been done by a white man. So what gives? The murders are so distinctive that they don't actually ever fit within a stereotypical understanding of who could have done them. And at no point ever, of course, is there any idea that it could have been a woman, multiple women, or anybody who's not black or white, namely someone who's Hispanic. And so the city doesn't know what to do with its own racial understandings of who could do this and then the reality of what's going on. And of course, initially, there's a major thought that everybody who's white is going to be safe because the first people who were killed are all young black women. But then the paper starts to think, well, what if the killer just gets a penchant towards the the other race? And lo and behold, perhaps that's true, but we don't actually know if it is true. And can you talk about some of the complexities with studying a serial killer, if you want to use that term, like the servant girl annihilator, just because there's so much uncertainty with this case. There's so much that you don't know. There's so much that you have to rely on other people's interpretations of what fits that particular model. So what kinds of methodologies do you employ to kind of sift through this material? Sure. So as I said, first things first is that I study the victims as opposed to the perpetrator. That way, Serial killer becomes less of a 
loaded term and more so a place for me to understand the intersections of various people's lives. And so though they come into the historical record through a level of trauma, I actually want to understand, well, who were they before? And in this particular case, who were they after? Because there's a really interesting past life that comes as a result of these crimes. And then I do something that I think maybe some historians would think is a little problematic, which is that I actually look at the way the crimes unfold at the moment in which they took place. So I don't look to draw patterns or connections like we get to do today, like we have the privilege of doing studying past serial killers. Instead, I want to know what happened from December 30th, 1884 until May 7th. How did the city understand what's going on and how are people coming to terms with what's happening? What makes serial killers in particular, as opposed to some other forms of violent crime, a really interesting mental space to study is that the first person killed by a serial killer is never understood to have been killed by a serial killer until someone else dies. And so for the perpetrator, it gets to be a unique space of buying time to act again or to not act again and to plan another crime such that linking the first one becomes the normal socially accepted thing to do. And so when Molly Smith is killed, everybody thinks it's her boyfriend. And then everybody thinks it's her ex-boyfriend who's from Waco. And so every the paper's reporting a love triangle has gone awry. William Brooks, the ex-boyfriend, has come down because he's jealous that she's living with Walter Spencer. And so he's the one who's done this. And the paper is pretty sure that's the case. A jury of inquest is convened. They find out that's not what's happened, but they don't know where to go from there. And so they stop. And then it's not until Eliza Shelley is killed that the paper looks back and says, well, there was another black woman a few months ago who was killed in a similar way. But at that point, five or six months had passed. So the serial killer idea took a long time to catch on. I think today we collectively understand at some point a serial killer has killed. Whether that's two people or three people or four people, we collectively come to a consensus about what that is. But historically, the way news traveled, I think it took even longer to make that connection. And so when you talk about that you want to center the victims, how do you write, how do you sort of craft a narrative that allows you to talk about all these things, but then you're dealing with the victims themselves as your subjects versus the perpetrators? Sure. So I actually center the victims by one simple way, which is I refuse to write how they died. I just won't. I will gladly quote the newspaper articles, and I tend to do it at length in these long block quotes to let someone else explain it. But I'm not going to reinscribe that violence in my own words. I don't think that's fair to these women. And so what that allows me to do then is to take the focus off of the moment in which they died and instead pull it into the relationships that they had before, the families that they left behind, where they lived, what social networks they had. And can you use things like city directories to figure out, well, they might have lived here, but who else was in their immediate circle? When Molly Smith is killed, the first thought is that uh, William Brooks uses the fact that he had been at a dance party that whole night, serving as the MC until like 4 a.m., and so there was no way he could have done it because he was, he was at this party. And lo and behold, the black community in Austin agrees with him. And they're like, we were having a great party. He was there. Don't worry about it. 
we can vouch for him. And so in that sort of a space, despite the trauma, we can see the development of a really robust Black community that's going on in town. And I'm interested in seeing how these women fit into that as opposed to how their lives were just ended. Because otherwise, it gets to be a really sad thing to study, the ending of Black women's lives, particularly younger Black women. So I just don't, I just don't write about it. And can you speculate as to why historical or fictional serial killings fascinate people? Because I really, I really appreciated the point you made about that you're not going to inscribe that violence in your work in the same way. And I think that in some ways, people are fascinated by violence and violent action. So is that something that you think is a factor? Or why do you think that it fascinates people in this way? I think you're definitely onto it. It's precisely the fact that they are violent. And yet, the thrill of the unknown in a historic or fictional serial killer is totally enmeshed in the irony that it is 100% known. It's over. Historically, they're dead, including the perpetrator. And then fictionally, well, it could never actually happen is what we tell ourselves. And so we like them in the past because we get to experience all of the fun and excitement and thrill and terror and horror and fear without actually experiencing any of those things in reality. You don't like the way the story is going? You close the book, you turn off the TV, you close the magazine, you leave. That's it. And so the idea that a serial killer can be contained in the past is really alluring to a lot of people in a way that an actual serial killer in real life, in real time, is absolutely terrifying. And I think studying this case in Austin in the past the way that I do allows me to understand more about why contemporary serial killers really do evoke a level of fear that we can't really replace. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about shows like Criminal Minds or, you know, when you have these very abstract notions of what a serial killer is versus someone like the D.C. Sniper, which was I, I have family from D.C. That was a very terrifying, you know, time to be living there. So it was. Yeah. Um, and so how do you how do you think about the contemporary aspects of this case that you think are still relevant? So I think you're hinting at the larger thing that's going on, which is this modern glorification of what I call the grotesque horror. Things like Criminal Minds, How to Get Away with Murder, Law and Order, Bones. I mean, there's so many shows today that are all about murder, the actual literal ending of someone's life, but only in fiction. And so you couple that with the modern news cycle in which we loop videos of people dying over and over and over again. Oftentimes it's new only if there's another angle we get to see. But it's the same death. And so as a result, we end up with this oversaturation in society of interest in murder and actually watching someone die. And not surprisingly, the Servant Girl Annihilator case has also reached interesting, maybe a resurgence in the last few years and that people are really captivated by it. And so there are a handful of fiction books out that have rewritten the story to include the actual person who named Servant Girl Annihilator as the, the term is O. Henry, who's a famous author, founder of Rolling Stone, lived in Austin for a while. And so there are a lot of fiction books that create a narrative around him and talk about how he would have understood these murders, which is problematic. And they give these women lives that basically justify their deaths, which is also concerning. There are quite a few local authors who like to write about 
these crimes in magazines like Austin Monthly and things like that. There's also a PBS special that tries to figure out who they think did it. And they conclude that it's a young man named Nathan Elgin, who was a young black man who simply was fighting a black woman at a bar, gets arrested for that. And then the police notice that he's missing a toe. And one of the footprints at one of the crime scenes was also missing a toe. And so when Nathan goes to jail, the murder stops. And so they think that it's him. And then what's perhaps most fascinating to me and brings the nexus of the contemporary together with the past is that there's a walking tour podcast of the murders. So you can pay for it, which we get into the issue of commodification versus commemoration. You can walk around to the sites where these women were killed. You can stop in the Austin History Center and view the police record of every black man who was pulled in to this And so you can go walking around to experience their deaths if you want. And so I do think there's a sort of concern, maybe, with the continued violence on these young women and maybe profiting off of their stories. Because ultimately, we want to understand them as people, not as simply murder victims. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on to 15-Minute History. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another wonderful episode. Thanks. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.